Hello, and thanks for listening to this episode of Healthcare 360, a podcast by BILH. I'm Rob Fields. I'm the Chief Clinical Officer, and I have two new friends and colleagues joining me today, doctors, Bruce Landon and Jennifer Stevens here with me today. So I'll let you guys introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do. Thanks for having us, Rob. It's really nice to be here. So my name is Bruce Landon. I'm a professor of healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School and also a professor of medicine at Harvard and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, where I practice primary care medicine. So I've been here for about 30 years, and my main interest is studying policies that we can implement that improve the value of care. And these can be policies from governments, from payers, from actual health systems, or even practices. And understanding what some of these things that we can do to improve the value of care are is, as you know, we spend about 20% of our economy on healthcare, yet it's a business that most people ignore as a business. And thinking about how we can spend that money more wisely is really what drives me and drives Mm -hmm. my interests. Awesome. Jennifer? I'm Jennifer Stevens. Clinically, I work as a pulmonary and critical care physician at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, but most of my time is spent running a research group called the Center for Healthcare Delivery Sciences. This is an embedded research group within the BIDMC and the BILH that uses the healthcare system as the organism of study. So we look at ways that we can improve the equity, the value, and take advantage of opportunities like AI and machine learning to improve the care that we deliver for patients. Somewhat unusually, most research groups are embedded within different departments within the hospital, but we're embedded within the hospital itself. So that allows us to cross boundaries within the institution. Most patients don't only get their care from oncology or OBGYN, and we work across all of those boundaries to actually follow the patient's care rather than the institutional silos and segregated areas that often drive research. So in both of you have highlighted the reasons why we're going to talk today. I think in our conversations together over my first nine or so months at BILH, we've discussed a lot about we do so many things in healthcare some of which have a tremendous amount of value, some of which have probably very little value. And we often treat them the same or execute on them the same and prioritize them the same when perhaps we shouldn't. And there is value in understanding what has value, right? And it seems like you both are attacking in different ways. But how did the two of you start working together? Or Bruce, do you work within the center or how does that work? So it turns out I do work within the center. So I've served as a senior scientific advisor. So I've been working with Jen since she was there. So I actually predate Jen at the center. So one of our colleagues, Mike Howell, came up with the idea for the center maybe 15 or 20 years ago. And I worked pretty closely with him at that time to help vet the idea, to learn about how similar types of centers were being organized at other health systems, and then to actually launch the center. And since that time, I've actually chaired the advisory board of the center as well. So I've been pretty intimately involved with the center, although not running it. And then we were lucky enough to have Jen accept taking over the center. How many years ago now, Jen? Six years ago. Six years ago. And it's in terrific hands. And she and I have been working closely together on lots of different things related to the center and related to work outside the center as well. Yeah. Maybe I can start with, before we get into the current work, what's been some of your favorite work or findings here over the last few years. Jen, you want to start with you? Oh, I think there's a range of different things that we've done. Sometimes the center does work only for the BILH and mm-hmm. the BIDMC, just for the organization to learn from what we do. And sometimes right. we do work that we publish so that other folks can learn from what we're doing. I'd say some of the things that we have published that were really interesting projects that other people could learn from and actually other health systems leveraged and used were different ways that we measured care during COVID or risk during COVID. One example of an idea that some of our team came up with 
after winning an MIT Datathon on the same thing, nice. was looking at how busy different businesses were and the foot traffic of that work. That was a open source project that we made available and a number of different hospitals in the New York system as well started to use that for their own COVID measures of risk. That was a very external project, one that we leveraged our own expertise in and then made generalizable knowledge from. I'd say there's been some really interesting equity and value focus work that we did around the state measures of crisis standards of care, uh-huh. working with the ethics group here and David Sontag, who yeah. I believe was somebody else on your podcast, That's right. to look at whether or not if we had implemented our crisis standards of care as written for the state, what that would have meant for racial, ethnic, and sociodemographic equity. We found some troubling things, which actually led to changes at both the state level and locally. And then I'd say internally, we've done really interesting work with different divisions and departments when they've challenged themselves to say, is the thing that we're doing that we assume to be good actually good? Is it accomplishing the value-focused goals or the patient-focused goals that we intend? Right. And those have often been great partnerships with different groups. Oncology is one that has been very interested in that work. When they put in place new different types of urgent care, does that lead to the outcome that they expect in terms of keeping their patients out of the ED? The answer in that case was yes, to the tune of about 30%. But working within the institution in particular often lets us conduct some of these very cool, straightforward, not terribly expensive natural experiments. Yeah. But you, Bruce, you have some favorites? So I'm going to actually talk about some things that are a little bit divorced from the center. But to set this up, so we're at Beth Israel Leahy Health, a new really large system in eastern Massachusetts. We enter into all these contracts with private payers and with government to deliver care that's under risk-based contracts where we're responsible for spending and quality. So one of the things that's really driven me probably over my entire career is thinking about how do we take that macro level policy and actually figure out what to do as a system or a system of practices to actually achieve those outcomes. So one of my particular area of interest has been in thinking about how to leverage the primary care system to do that. So if you think about an accountable care organization arrangement or any of these sorts of risk arrangements, they really, at their crux, they rely on primary care to actually take ownership of patients, to manage their care throughout the system, and to improve their quality. And one of the things that's very clear to anyone who's sort of an observer of primary care is that the primary care system, the payment system, is completely broken. So we pay primary care physicians for piecework. That's only for work that's done when a patient's in the office for the most part, notwithstanding telehealth, which is actually very similar conceptually right now. Instead of thinking about the sort of 24 hours a day, seven days a week care that needs to around patients, with telephone calls, with messaging, with all the information that's coming across to them. So we did a number of years ago, we did a modeling study where we looked at new primary care payment strategies. So it turns out really since I'd say the early 2000s, there's been a whole bunch of experimentation with things like primary care capitation and payment systems that will include measures of quality and access and spending and all those sorts of things. And when you look at what's sort of happened in primary care in the last 15 years, it turns out that the these new payment systems have had no impact as far as we can tell. And the question we asked was, why is that? And so we did a modeling study where we actually have developed a micro simulation model of primary care practice. And we are able to toggle some of the inputs there, in this case, the payment system. And what our modeling study clearly showed was that if you want new payment systems to actually have any impact on primary care, you need to move most of the payment toward that system. So what we've typically done is dipped our toes in the water and had minor little experiments 
requirements with payment reform that might impact 5 or 10% of the patient panel, right. one payer, let's say. Those are just not enough to change the underlying structure and function and how the practice works. So this is something I think is a really important finding because I think places like Beth Israel Leahy Health, if we want to change primary care, need to change the way that we contract for primary care. And this needs to be across the board, not just for a single payer. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. So thanks. Those examples are really helpful in terms of thinking what it is that you guys do. I'm going to guess that if you are the average patient, the average consumer, you probably assume that some evaluation of the things that we do to people is done on a regular basis to make sure that it has the intended outcome, that it costs what it should cost, that it has the returns from both a quality and clinical perspective and financial perspective that we would expect of anything else, right? Not just as patients, but as taxpayers, potentially, if we can allow ourselves to think that way. But I know from the two of you and from my own experience that we don't do nearly enough of this kind of work, is my sense. Do you think that's true? And should we be doing more and why and how? I think that's absolutely true. I think that the reason that we probably don't is multifold. One is that a lot of things that we do in healthcare or policies that we implement or strategies that we do at an office, division, department, institutional level, we do assume to be the right way to go. We assume that we have good intentions and the policies we put in place must be inherently correct. And by the time that policy gets in place and we've started to learn and live with that new state, we're on to the next thing. And there's not a lot right. of time to go back and reflect. And at best, maybe we're doing some before and after comparisons and calling it a win, <laughs> partly because those often are going in the right direction and they right. tell us the information that conforms to what we thought was going to happen. Right. There's a lot of knowledge that's lost because that happens that way. I'd say another reason that we do that is because the data in healthcare is inherently very messy, very complicated, not naturally used by the people who are putting those policies in place. And that's okay. We all have different expertise within our field, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do something that's a little bit harder. That's part of why the center exists, because that's what our expertise is, is to try to come up with how do we make sense of messy healthcare data. And then finally, I'd say there's not a lot of external support for that. What Bruce didn't add is that he was the mentor on my very by-the-book HRQK grant, which is a mentored research grant, one of these grants that we're supposed to get as up-and-coming fellows and new researchers, but a funding mechanism that doesn't necessarily lend itself to the type of work that I do or that we do. And of course, Bruce was an important piece of making that possible for me as a young investigator. Right. That said, there's also not a lot of funding support nationally or locally for this type of work as well. We all have collaborated on a grant that's under review, as you recall, which is a really interesting project. But think about the timeline for that. We have an idea. You have an idea. We're trying to put this in place for a clinical innovation. Right. And the timeline for that grant is over a year before we even hear anything. Right. So that doesn't lend itself to the sort right. of external support for that evaluation. So challenges are culture, data, and funding support, and that's pretty hard to do. That said, I'd say it's pretty wild that this institution has a group like ours that has yeah, supported absolutely. a group like ours, and right. that's pretty forward thinking to sort of get ahead of that. Yeah, I would agree. You know, I think that I know you spend a fair amount of time thinking about value from a cost perspective. And there's a bit of certainly as the economics of healthcare are worse year to year in many ways in terms of affordability, even on the individual perspective, but then nationally, it feels like we should be paying more attention to value from that perspective as well as 
taxpayers and stewards of resources. However, the trends keep going up. And in the end, individuals want what they want. How do you reconcile that as a researcher? And how do you hope that your findings help change behavior? It's a big question. So I think, you know, this concept that you're talking about really gets at the underlying failure of healthcare to work as other markets do. So in other markets, we can make decisions based on quality and cost. And the key thing is that the quality piece is actually observable to us. So we can go and you know try to buy a car and we can distinguish the fit and the finish and how well a car drives and how well it's put together between one that might be expensive and one that might be inexpensive. And then we can choose to spend our money how we choose to spend our money. In healthcare, it's simply very difficult for the average consumer to do that. So in fact, it's even difficult for the average doctor to do that. So for instance, if I were to go to Dr. Stevens and say, you know, who do you think is the best heart surgeon at our hospital? We might have someone that we're friendly with that seems to be good at communicating with us, our patients like them. But the truth is, when I want to know the quality of a heart surgeon, I want to know how well they throw that stitch when they're attaching, you know, the distal artery. And no one can do that unless you're actually in the OR looking at that. And even frankly, surgeons aren't able to do that or assess that very well. And so these are things that are very difficult to do even for insiders like us. And for average consumers, it's nearly impossible. So as a result, we have to rely on sort of agency. We have to rely on physicians to make these decisions for us. And then there's another piece of this, since we all have insurance now for the most part. I mean, we're up to 92% insurance levels. Even people that don't actually have coverage will get care. In Massachusetts specifically. In in Massachusetts, certainly. (laughs) That's almost across the country now, the 92% thing. So when we actually at the point of care, we actually don't have to pay out of pocket for it. We don't actually have to think about the economics of that decision. So as a result, even though whatever I spend is going to impact my premiums a little bit, it's spread out over lots and lots of people. So as you're implying, everyone as a result at the time when they're getting their care, they want any particular treatment, doesn't matter how expensive it is, it doesn't matter how little the value and how little the return on that's going to be, they're going to want it because it's not really impacting them at all. And that's one of the things that we sort of try to focus on, which is to really try to identify situations where things are and are not useful and to help clinicians and organizations make decisions that take it away from that individual physician level decision, because it's really hard for a physician to say no related to anything. But we should make these kinds of decisions based on data. That's totally fair. So this is for either or both of you, devil's advocate. So you're commenting when you go to make a healthcare decision, the information necessary to define the highest quality, highest value, and however we define a provider is not totally clear, which absolutely been true in my experience as well. However, devil's advocate, I'm the heart surgeon. And I say, well, not all patients are the same. My outcomes may not look that great in the data that you have in your evaluation, but my patients are sicker. We learned the proverbial, my patients are always sicker. I take care of more patients with diabetes or advanced heart disease or advanced atherosclerosis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you would answer... So let's be clear, first of all, there's very few things in healthcare where we actually compare hospitals, surgeons, et cetera, based on their outcomes. And in fact, you mentioned sort of the one that we've done, which is open heart surgery. And why do we compare surgeons on their survival rates for open heart surgery? Because the death rates are high enough that we can actually measure something. So for instance, if I was going to try to do that for orthopedic surgeons taking care of knees, Mm -hmm. nobody dies from that operation. So looking at death rates is really irrelevant. You'd want to look at functional status. Right. 
And in fact, in these systems where we've tried to actually do this kind of measurement and report it publicly and whatnot, it's led to perverse behaviors because of exactly what you're talking about. So it turns out that, you know, a place like Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center is going to get complicated cases that perhaps other hospitals don't want to tackle. And when you actually have your surgeons thinking about, wow, this patient might be sicker beyond what we can measure in risk adjustment, and that's going to make my outcomes look bad, then we might actually have surgeons saying, no, this is not an appropriate case. In fact, we saw a little bit of evidence in this. For instance, the New York State program where they were measuring outcomes of cardiac surgeons, there was some evidence that they were actually referring patients out of state who were too sick to actually be measured or right. to do that. So we're not usually looking at outcomes. But this is actually this area of risk adjustment is, I think, pertinent for almost everything because it also influences capitation budgets. So if we get paid a budget to take care of a patient and we're not pristinely measuring how sick that patient is, and they're actually much sicker than it appears from the risk adjustment, right. then that means the system needs to take a loss. Right. Jen, any additional thoughts on? I mean, I would say that there's a couple of additional details that are particularly interesting about your question. One is, you know, we hang everything on risk adjustment and it, you back that up to how we build those risk adjustments. And they're entirely based on billing strategies, right? right. They're entirely based on right. billing data that are, again, back to the sort of perverse type of healthcare data that we have available to us, things that are measured at the end of an admission, things that are measured at different time points, things that don't actually ascribe to any sort of good data stewardship or strategy <laughs> or perspective research right. approach that you would right. ever want them to do. So no, of course, they are going to miss a lot of things, but it's sort of the assumptions compounded by assumptions, errors compounded by errors that are, yeah. that are built into all of these data. So the other thing is to just emphasize what Bruce said about how some of these programs do create some of these perverse measures. You create a timeline after a year at which something is measured or success is evaluated and suddenly yeah. you find everyone surviving to exactly a year. Um, <laughs> you um, look at different types of ways that, say, Medicare supports long-term care and you find a lot of things happening at exactly three months. So the field of quality improvement has the concept of the balancing measure, which is also something we don't use a lot in this type of work, which is right. to say the measure that looks for harm or unintended right. consequences right. of the work that we do. Add on that. So, yeah, I please. mean, you know, it turns out that in general, doctors are pretty smart. So, if <laughs> you general. put in, certainly hope so. <laughs> Yeah, maybe present company exclude. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, you put in these systems and just like Jen was saying, like, you know, there's going to be rules and requirements and doctors and people that work around doctors are pretty good at figuring out how to game that system. And that's frankly what happens with any kind of quality measurement. I can't remember who said it, but there's an adage in the quality measurement sphere. You know, once you pay for something that you're measuring, it becomes a useless measure. And that's because of yeah. all that gaming that happens around. Right. It. And that's a big challenge we have with all of the measurement systems that we have in place is that people basically basically played at the test. Yeah. One of the very first projects I did as a fellow was looking at ventilator-associated pneumonias, which used to mm -hmm. be a measurement that we were evaluated on. And we put standardized cases to a number of different physicians and got a completely stochastic, which is to say a completely random result mm. in which patients were deemed to have ventilator-associated oh, wow. pneumonia and which didn't. That measure has been put aside, but that was one of the many nails in that coffin. And <laughs> there's just, you know, you have a measure that can be gamed, you will find a way to game it. Yeah, we've been trained to do well on tests and we play to the test and can move forward, right? And by the way, this is a thing not just with quality measure and it's also with payment. So Jen was talking about ventilator-associated pneumonia. Another area in her sphere is sepsis. Mm. So it turns out we've had an epidemic of sepsis over the last 10 <laughs> or 20 years. Cases are skyrocketing. Is that really true? Do we see more sepsis? No, it's just people are being coded for that because you get paid a lot more money for sepsis admission than for a plain pneumonia, for instance. I know as we have a 
just a few minutes left. I want to, first of all, plant a seed now to ask you if there are other things you want to make sure we mention that people understand or really advocate, if you will, maybe for the inclusion of this kind of research into more. So just planting a seed, like what's your big pitch? But the more immediate question is really a selfish thing to address a pet peeve of mine, and that's pre-post. And Jen, you mentioned it earlier. I feel like the vast majority of quote-unquote, I'm using air quotes that nobody can see on the podcast, but air quotes here, research that happens certainly in the pop health space has been pre-post. We have a population of people, we do X intervention, look how much better we did, and we should scale this. And the reality is that most of that is nonsense. But two experts here with me today, can you guys comment a bit on why that is the case, why we often see improvements that often lead us astray? And is there an appropriate place for pre-post evaluations? And if so, where? So why do we do it? Why does it lead us astray? And what's the appropriate setting in which that can be used? I would say, why do we do it? It's because it's a little bit of a availability bias. There's those data are available. Ideally, we're collecting it around an outcome that we've already decided is of interest to us with the asterisk that, again, with everything we've just covered in this podcast, those data may be available, but may not be the right data. Mm-hmm. I would say that why does it often lead us astray? Two major reasons. Oftentimes, we're moving towards something of improvement, particularly with an area that we have a big focus on, a big effort around. And so therefore, if you look at a line that is ascending, you cut it in half and average both of those halves, you're going to see an improvement. But was that actually better beforehand? No, that line was already going up before you ever got there. And then the last question was... Is there an appropriate place? I mean, there are clearly deficits, but is there an appropriate place for this kind of evaluation? I would say that it's always a good starting point. A a pre-post analysis is a good starting point. Certainly, if that is negative, if those findings are negative, then you probably can stop there. It's a good first pass. But I would imagine, depending on the setting, there's a number of other things you could do to reassure yourself that that trend is real. One thing that Bruce has always emphasized to me over my research career is when you get an answer that agrees with your prior assumption, you should push on that harder. Hmm. So when the, when the answer is agrees with your prior in a Bayesian sense, but when it agrees with what you thought was going to be the answer, you should double check your assumptions. That's really good advice for those listening out there. <laughs> so two things I'd like to say in this. So the first one sort of related to that study design question. The second one related to the overall milieu. So getting to the study design question. So frankly, this is what I see as one of the sort of the role, the mission of a center like the Center for Healthcare Delivery Science. It's our job to actually be out there, be with our colleagues and actually try to sort of have them understand the pitfalls of these sorts of analyses and to help them to think about how to design design the implementation so that you can learn from it from the get-go. So a big challenge for pre-post studies. So let's think about something like case management. So I think the best example of this is Amy Finkelstein's recent work related to the Camden Coalition, mm-hmm. where there was a whole bunch of observational research that seemed to suggest that this case management program for basically, you know, very sick, poor individuals in Camden, they called it hot spotting, right. was incredibly effective. They identified these patients and they give them a case manager and help them manage their care processes and whatnot. It turns out when this was subjected to a randomized control trial, 
it had absolutely no effect. So why is that? Many interventions that we do in healthcare are not done across the board, but we in fact try to select the patients that we think are going to benefit the most. Right. So in the case when you're trying to, for instance, select high spending patients, we know that from year to year that these patients become different and there's what we call regression to the mean. So if somebody's very high spending in year one, they're going to go back down toward the average in year two. So if you just look at this in a pre-post framework, you're actually going to find a positive effect mm -hmm. because of just the natural evolution of what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. So that makes it really important to try to think through what your evaluation strategy is going to be for anything like this. Now, there are probably things where we might, for instance, change a practice on a clinical floor where it applies to every single discharge. And we can look at that activity on that same floor the year before or the several months before, as long as we can convince ourselves that there hasn't been that much in the way of secular change, mm -hmm. some of those evaluations might actually be fine. But there's always people that are going to say, well, what about secular trends? Was there any kind right. of selection? Right. So you're almost always better having some sort of contemporaneous control group, whether it be randomized or at least quasi-experimental. Yeah. Getting back to sort of like the issue, the other issue you talked about, which is how can we sort of encourage more of this research to happen? I think Jen's story about her K award is maybe emblematic of this, but this whole issue about how we fund research on the health system, I think is very problematic right now. We have a structure on the research side that we all have to sort of live within related to grants from the NIH, from even from BCORI, but certainly from AHRQ. It often takes two or three times putting in a grant in with multiple months in between them. That means that coming up from with the inception of an idea to actually getting funding can sometimes take two, three, or more years. Wow. As another example, I have a grant that's in the fundable range. I spoke to the project officer literally on Friday who told me you're almost certainly getting funded. It's just going through the paperwork. I got this fundable score back in July. It is now January. Yeah. We haven't started. And this was the second time that grant went in. So now we're talking about two, two and a half years in the timeline. And you simply can't do that for healthcare interventions where there's an organization that wants to improve care and improve something right now. Right. So we need to figure out another model if we're going to actually have effective research on improving our health system. Yeah, that's really helpful. Jen, some last thoughts on how to make this kind of work more persistent and pervasive? I would say that I'm pretty partial to the way we've set it up here, which is to say embedded within the organization, responsive to different members of the hospital and larger organizational leadership, and quite frankly, with an investment by everyone involved that this is something that's important. There is one challenge that we haven't talked about in this group today, which is what do you do with those findings? And creating space from an organizational standpoint to learn from that right. those findings is right. pretty critical to make it worth the upfront investment. It's fine to learn that the oncology urgent care new practice reduces ED emissions by 30%. What does that now mean for the oncology group? Are they going to right. fund that going forward? Are they going to refine that? Do they want to study that further? Is that the only metric they care about? What are they going to do differently? What are they going to learn from? And then what's the next test that they're going to put in place to evaluate patient care and value? What does that mean for us as a larger health system when we have a range of these different small groups within larger groups within larger groups how do we want to evaluate those and study them and then learn from them? So I would say that the center as a design is a pretty effective design. Right. It does have its limits, though, because we're only, you know, so many people. And just as Bruce said, the larger research landscape isn't really built for this at all. Even PCORI, which is intended to do this work, still has endless timelines, endless turnarounds that make this really hard to do. 
And can I make two other points? One is that, and I completely agree with Jen, I think the presence of a center like this is terrific. But if we think about this from a larger policy perspective, that requires you hospital to actually have a positive margin to have enough money available to invest. If you get paid a lot less than your neighboring institution, they're the one that's going to have the money to invest. Safety net hospitals are going to have much less money on the margin to do these sorts of things. So if we're counting on the institutions to be able to do this, we're going to be creating an uneven playing field. And that is for certain going to be an issue. Mm -hmm. The second thing is we mentioned this oncology model where maybe we decrease admissions. So we also have to remember that all these hospitals are operating within a healthcare system that has perverse incentives. So for instance, we as a hospital, we stand to make more money if we admit more patients. Even under risk-bearing contracts, the extent of to which we're at risk is probably not enough to offset that revenue that comes in right now. So a lot of times we might actually find we can spend a lot of money and we're either going to impact our revenue in a way that's not looked upon favorably, or we might spend a lot of money and actually improve care, but not get paid anymore for that. So that leaves, you know, an administrator having to make a decision. Do we want to invest that money when it's clearly going to have a negative return on investment for us? Right. Even though we think it's good to improve the care of patients and we always want to do that, we can't do everything we want for every patient. So this also gets to the fact that we have a lot of perverse incentives in our system. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we had a the conversation with David about limited resources, and you can take that topic all the way into this one, right? There's how do you operate in the era of scarce resources when you can't do everything for everyone? And, and what do we do? But first of all, I've really enjoyed working with the two of you. And thanks for taking the time to come all the way to Cambridge to have this conversation. And hopefully we'll talk again, right, about some other projects we'll work on. Thanks for what you do. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Healthcare 360. If you have ideas, please submit comments on social media and please rate us on your favorite podcast app. Thanks a lot for listening.